Father, thank you that we can continue in this book of Exodus. And Lord, we do pray as we cover this long narrative, Lord, that we will see the importance of it. We will see truths within it. And we will see the application for our lives today because of it. And we just pray you'll teach us now uh, by the power of your Spirit, for your sake and glory. Amen. Please do keep uh, this passage open, this long narrative, starting at page 63, verse 8 of chapter 7. We've reached such a a familiar uh, point in the book of Exodus, the the ten plagues. I sat around the dinner table before I came out tonight and asked Isabel and Nathan how many of the plagues they could remember, and they pretty much got every one of them, uh, which I was rather impressed at. But... um, I have to say, when, when you look through this narrative, I'm going to be honest with you, there's not massive contemporary application to be found here. There are bits, and, and we'll bring them out, but when we look at the, the plagues themselves, well, well they're, they're plagues, aren't they? You know, there's not great contemporary application that can come out, really, unless we're going to force it in there, uh, from the plagues themselves. We're not Israelites, we're not in Egypt, we're not enslaved by a pharaoh. It's just not us today. So I suppose the ultimate purpose of this section is to find the application. What can we learn about God and ourselves from this long narrative? Not the plagues themselves, but in its relationship to the sort of overarching theology and and its Christological perspective. How does it point us to Christ? Does it point us to the Lord Jesus? I hope we'll see that it does. But what I want to say before we get into the passage is that one of the big things that I hope we will see is that of creation. Creation we've talked about as we've gone through uh, Exodus so far. Pharaoh is seen as, if you remember back in chapter 1, not only a sort of anti-God, he's an anti-creation force. His intent in chapter 1 of reversing what God uh, stated in chapter 1 of Genesis. Pharaoh opposed God because he opposed God's creation mandate for his people to flourish, to grow, and to rule. And here tonight, in this great long narrative, we see God using creation to show Pharaoh who really is God, who really is the all-powerful, and who really is in control. Well, let's dig in. Let's firstly see the preview uh, verse 7, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 8, through to verse 13. I don't know if, if you're a sports fan, but if you're a sports fan like me, you'll know that often the build-up to a, a match or a cricket match or a football match um, or even a boxing match. If, I'm not into boxing, but I do like the, the pre-sort of stuff that gets... Uh, that, that goes on with it. You'll know that the build-up to a match, or a fight if you're into boxing, can be as good, sometimes better, than the match themselves. It can provi- uh, provide much insight to the opponents, uh, as well as the anticipation of what's to come. So, you know, the Blackburn Rovers are uh, quarter-final last month against Liverpool, so the possibility of going to Wembley, the anticipation, the build-up was great. The match was rubbish. (laughs) And that usually goes the way. And that's what we get in these verse first little section in verses 8 to 13. 
That's what we get. We get a preview of what is to come. Changing the uh, staff, if you remember, was one of the three signs that God gave to Moses back in chapter 4. And this one was to be performed in front of Pharaoh. Moses, after being encouraged by God, now goes to Pharaoh in God's power with Aaron, his sort of prophet. Remember, Moses is being God to Pharaoh and Aaron is being his prophet. And the point of this little encounter is clear, I think. It's an encounter. It's the preview to the big match between two rival gods. Pharaoh was seen as a god and the one true god. This brief sort of barring embodies what is going to happen over the next few chapters. And it embodies the main elements of the ten plagues. And what we will see, and what we see here, is that God shows his power to Pharaoh. He shows his power to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh resists the clear conclusion that he's not going to win, that he's done for. Instead of conceding victory early on, he stubbornly refuses leading to such terrible consequences. What's the relevance of uh, Aaron turning the staff into a snake? Well, the headdress of a pharaoh would often have looked like a cobra. Snakes represented Egyptian power. For Aaron's staff to turn into a snake was a direct challenge to pharaoh's power. And even though his magicians copied it, Aaron's snakes swallowed up their snake. Pharaoh should have seen by this little illustration where the true power lies. It's not in himself, it's not in his magicians, it's not in his sorcerers, but in the creator God who gives genuine power, not magic. So there's the preview. Then I want us to look at the nine plagues first in chapter 7 verses 14 through to chapter 11, verse 10. I'm just going to make a little few comments on some of the important bits that come out of it, so please do stay with me. Tonight's really a sort of stopgap in the narrative, if you will, to next week, where Paul's preaching on the Passover. You know, the, the, we get to familiar ground again and familiar sort of relevance and application. But let's look at these nine plagues, so please do stay with me. Please do follow if you've got a Bible, it's helpful. God's first judgment on Egypt, though, before the, the plague was the plague of blood. Okay? This plague of blood. This turning uh, the waters of the Nile into blood. The Nile was uh, the place where the first Pharaoh, if you remember, tried to kill off the Israelites in chapter 1. And now all of a sudden it's become a source of trouble for this new Pharaoh and for Egypt. Egypt was fully dependent on the, the waters of the Nile. So to attack the Nile was to attack Egypt itself. They saw the Nile as a source of life. But now we're seeing it's, it's a picture of death. It's riddled with, with blood. But if you look at verses 22 to 24, Moses did what God commanded... But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Apparently, there is a way to do it in the Nile. Um, the, 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 the red sand underneath could easily be uh, messed with to produce water that looked like blood. 
Or they did some other magic secret arts. But the result of that, Pharaoh's not got the point of the snakes. He started already to harden his hearts. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. Didn't even consider the fact that he is in the wrong. What did the Egyptians do? Verse 24, all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Well, the second plague is that of frogs. And we see it again, Moses, uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, we see that Moses goes to Pharaoh with God's order to let his people go. Seven days passed, goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, or this is going to happen, verse 2. If you refuse, there will be a result of your consequence. And this plague is the first plague that involves animals. Plagues 1 and 9 have got water and and darkness, but plague 2, 3, 4 and 8 are sort of a pouring out of the animal kingdom on human victims. Turning the animal kingdom against humanity is a reversal of the creation order, isn't it? Humanity is meant to have domain and authority and power over animals. So it's another sign of God's judgment in reversing the way that creation is meant to be between humans and animals. And the environmental effects on creation from these animals, here frogs, would have been massive. It would have had such a massive impact on creation. But there's something else that we need to see. Hemet, the goddess of childbirth, had the head of a frog. So again, God is beating them at their own game. Your goddess of childbirth that has birth that has the head of a frog. Maybe there's a bit of irony. I'm going to use frogs to come and attack you, attack their beliefs, attack their power. It's the first sort of sign that Yahweh's making that He is bigger than all other gods. There's more gods to come that they would worship with reference to the plagues. And notice too in the plague to the frogs that the magicians cannot now reproduce any of God's plagues. They can't do it. They know they're beaten. They know that they can't play a game anymore. This is serious stuff. And we see here the start of Pharaoh in verse 15. Oh, sorry, before verse 15. Uh, Verse 9, sorry. We start to see here Pharaoh appealing to Moses for God to stop. But when it did, his heart consistently hardened, just as the Lord said it would, verse 15. The third plague God sent was uh, gnats. And it just happened this time. There was no warning. It just happens. And here we see Pharaoh's magicians acknowledging that the hand of God is at work. Verse 19. They know this is the finger of God. But the result, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord said. The fourth plague, I think this is my worst plague. The flies, can't stand flies. Horrible things. 
And here we see the distinction that God shows Pharaoh between his people and God's people. The flies would not touch the land of Goshen. And that's the land that, uh, that, that the first Pharaoh gave to the Israelites when they moved to there. And we see a repeat, don't we, of Pharaoh giving in, then reversing his decision after the flies went. The fifth plague shows again God making the separation of who is his people. He would kill all the livestock of Egypt, but the Israelites would live. But Pharaoh will still not give in. The sixth plague was boils. And here we're reminded who is sovereignly ruling this situation in chapter 9. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, verse 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord said to Moses. Remember, this is God's judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt. That God is sovereignly controlling these events, even the heart of Pharaoh, so he could bring him directly to his knees to see once and for all his sinfulness and God's awesomeness and his judgment on him well the seventh plague was hail and uh, was hail and it shows the frightening power that god has even over the elements and you'd thought by now that pharaoh might just really be giving in well verse 27 uh, of chapter 9 he summons moses and he says this time i have sinned this time He said to them, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. So Moses does his usual thing. He appeals to the Lord, and the Lord relents. Yet what does Pharaoh do? He sins again. He turns his back on what he said. He goes back on his word. But I know, um, Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. It does it. Verse 33, Moses leaves Pharaoh, went out to the city, did what he said. Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. We're given again a true picture of Pharaoh's heart. A true picture of a heart opposed to God. His heart was consistently and persistently against God. And that's what we see. Well, the eighth plague of locusts was given as a sign that the people of Egypt, verse 2 of chapter 10, would know who God is. I may perform these signs of mine among them that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed many signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. Part of the intention of these plagues is so that everybody knows who Yahweh is. That there could be no more, as we saw, I think, last week who, or the week before, who is, this, who is the Lord? Who is this God that is telling me that I have to let my slaves go. Part of this would be implanted on their minds and memories forever. That the Lord of all, the great I am, is the one at work. God wants to make sure that for generations, 
they would know what it means to be on the wrong side of the Lord and be his enemy. And God here, verse 7, wants the people to see that Pharaoh is the root cause of these disasters. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realise that Egypt is ruined? Even Pharaoh's own officials know that Pharaoh is the cause of this. Now Pharaoh here in verses 16 onwards seems defeated, but God has not yet finished. Pharaoh's heart has not yet seen the extent of his rebellion against God and God's judgment on him. For we see that the ninth plague was the plague of darkness. Again, he shows the distinction between Egypt and God's people, the Israelites, for darkness falls over Egypt, yet light still shines on his people. It's a beautiful picture. That light of Christ shining on his pe- in the New Testament on his people. That light of Christ to be revealed through his people. Here we are seeing God shining his light on his people. Yet darkness on the world. Now we know that darkness represents judgment, don't we? In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. So it's no wonder that this is the penultimate plague before the final plague, the final act of judgment. So darkness should be standing out to us now as we think about this last plague of darkness. And it should be standing out to us because we we know that God was preparing to act. He was preparing his final judgment. It was ready to be completed. And Pharaoh, we see, relents. Oh, so it seems. He allows the people to go, yet he holds back the animals in verse 25 of chapter 10. Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifice and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We don't know what God wants, basically. We don't know what God wants us to do when we go out to sacrifice. You know, he might want us to sacrifice our cattle, our livestock. Well, I just wonder if the reason why Pharaoh says, no, you can't take them, It's not so much that he needs them, but he knows the Israelites will need them and they'll come back. But Moses insists, no, they have to come. Now before we get to the last plague on the firstborn boys, we need to see that there is a link between creation and salvation in the Old Testament. I really want us to grasp this this sort of theology that we see in the Old Testament. Exodus is the sort of ultimate picture, if you will, or, uh, of God's saving work in the Old Testament. This story, this narrative of Exodus. And it serves as a sort of link or partnership for other redemptive acts. Knowing that Jesus is the climax of God's saving plan in history. And so we see creation behaving in ways that resemble what we have seen. 
We've seen in the plagues, God is using creation to save his people. And when you read Exodus, I think when you read, get to the, the Ten Commandments, the first thing when God before that is reminding them that he's brought them out, the word is saved. This is a salvation point that the Old Testament is making to us. And we see it again in the salvation aspect of Jesus coming to save. Creation announces Jesus' birth to the Magi by what? The star. Jesus' first miracle is what? Turning water into wine. The use of creation is there again. Like Moses, Jesus shows his authority over creation. Does it through his miracles? He do it, does it through his uh, authority over the water, the wind and the waves? And the climax of this relationship between creation and salvation is seen, isn't it, at the cross. For before the Lord dies on the cross, darkness falls. Darkness falls. As God's judgment was being poured out, climaxing in Christ's death. Creation and salvation is always partnered in the Bible. But we're still left with the thoughts, what does it all mean for us today? If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to us today, the, the narrative between chapter 7 verse 8 to 11 verse 10? Well, I think at one level we'd want to respond that it shows us that we are to be in awe of the awesomeness of God. How much of that is in our thinking in our daily lives? How often are we in awe of the awesomeness of God? There is absolutely no one like Him. There is no earthly king or earthly king who thinks he's a God because there can be only one God. And there is only one God, Yahweh. And time and time and time again, we know from last week, God says, I am going to put my mighty hand to work so that everybody knows who I am. The officials know that Pharaoh is the cause and actually if he stops and relents, God will stop and relent. Even Pharaoh to some extent knows he's sinning against God. So one application for today from this is how awesome is our God to us. And not only that, because God is an awesome God, our response should be always praise and worship. And it should influence our praise and worship. It does make me chuckle. I know I'm a stiff, uh, and I'm you know quite happy with that. But you know we often sing these songs, reminding ourselves of God's awesomeness, and we look miserable, don't we? Don't we? We do. We look so miserable. Are we in awe of the awesome God that we're responding to in praise and worship? Because we know that's what we ought to do. But why, how do we do it? I'm not saying we have to dance around and bang tambourines. Sorry, Sarah, that was just for you being here tonight. 
But if we are so in awe of the awesomeness of God, it should affect us a little bit more, shouldn't it? As we consider the works of the Lord, as we consider His mighty hand, as we consider His greatness, how much does it move us to respond in praise and worship? And then secondly, I can only go so far because Paul sort of gets to fill it in next week for us at the Passover and the actual event, but it should remind us of our salvation, shouldn't it? These events are also about the Creator God saving His people. In Exodus, God revealed Himself through Moses to be the one who brought salvation. In the New Testament, God revealed Himself to us and the gospel of His saving grace in the God-man Jesus. God always acts for His people. God has always called a people to Himself. And the way He does it is absolutely amazing. Israel went through such a long process to experience God's salvation. And so often it's the same for many of us today. We go through so much to experience that salvation that the Lord Jesus has won at the cross for us. How much do we wonder at the awesomeness of God but of His wonderful grace and mercy, of His saving ways. I love listening to the way people become Christians. We don't do it enough in church. We keep saying we'll do it and we just seem to forget. I don't know why. Maybe we're not in awe of the awesomeness of God and what He does in people's lives. I don't know. But we're poor at it, aren't we? But isn't it great when you, you see how God works in bringing people to faith? The works that He does, the places that He puts people in, the people who He uses, we see a picture of that in this narrative in Exodus. He, he uses all these different means and methods for Israel to experience that salvation. Yet it is just a picture, a foreshadow of what is to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, very finally, this final plague in verses 11, 1 to 10. I'm not going to say too much because I know Paul will uh, bring it into his sermon next week. But The plagues, they are now brought to a close by God. Verse 1, he says, that's it now. This is it. The darkness has fallen. There's going to be one more plague and it's that final act of judgment. And it's the fulfilment of God back in chapter 4, 21-23. If you remember, God says this is what's going to happen. He's going to cause Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. We're going to go through all this process until this final act. This final act of God's judgment. So this plague, it's not an afterthought or an extra. It's the final act by the mighty hand of God that will see His people freed and saved and in which there will be no reversal. Every other plague is reversed. But not this one. This is the final blow to Pharaoh. The final plague, this plague of the death of the firstborn sons, it may be seen partly in God's exposing of Egyptian religion. Pharaoh is considered a son of the the sun god, Re, R-E, in Egyptian religion. 
and attack on the religion God of death. Only Yahweh has the power over life and death. But this plague also takes us back to chapter 1 of Exodus. In verse 4, Moses tells Pharaoh that God is coming in chapter 11 to kill Egypt's firstborn. And this is clearly God's retributive judgment on Pharaoh in one sense for him seeking to kill Israel's, his firstborn, in chapter 1. This is a just judgment that God is bringing. And it is hard to take and it is hard for us to grasp and get our heads round. But God is not some sort of, you know, horrible God. He he, is perfect and holy. It's not some sort of um, getting his own back. It's not, I was thinking about this this afternoon, it's not an eye for an eye. Once again, God is making the clear statement that he is making a distinction between Egypt and his people, the Israelites. And that this is an act of judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt for the way they have treated his people. To be an enemy of the one true God, Yahweh, will always end in judgment and death. Remember that in chapter 6, 23 of Romans, the wages of sin is death. So final and devastating will this plague be, the people of Egypt will beg Israel to leave. And not only that, God provides them through his mighty hand to leave with more than they brought in, verse 9. The whole point of this last plague is not just for Egypt then. Because as we know next week in chapter 12, God is going to instill this event into Israel's memories for generations to come. And we're going to see the significance again of the firstborn over the coming weeks. But just as it was instilled into the memories of God's saving work. Isn't it interesting how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper? Not to remember of God's passing over of the people in Egypt, but of the cross. Of God's judgment not falling on humanity now, but on the Lord Jesus. God's saving grace here now came through His great sacrifice. His great sacrifice to bring us to Him. Let's pray together. Why don't we just take a few moments to think about the awesomeness of God, to think about the salvation that we've experienced if we're a Christian, the saving works that God has done in our lives. Why don't we just spend a few moments reflecting and actually praising God for how great He is.